This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to improve your relationships, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into potential new treatments for mental illness and important insights into its causes. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of 25 years of the practice of psychiatry along the way striving to reduce the stigma associated with having mental health problems and needing treatment for them. And welcome back. Uh, missed you last week, but we're back with another new podcast this week and looking forward to bringing you some very exciting developments in the world of mental health and appreciate your listening in because the fact that you do, of course, means that these are subjects that are meaningful to you and important to you and that you're interested in being well informed about. And uh, that is my goal, to better inform the general public about mental health issues. So right off the bat, we're going to start with something that I found very exciting. There's so much controversy about that women taking in depressants during pregnancy causing problems such as autism or ADHD. Uh, there have been some sporadic reports coming out about this, and a lot of people in the field really didn't buy into that there was any direct cause or relationship. So, of course, some people took a much closer look at that issue, and uh, lo and behold, now we have some feedback from that. So, um, the study that I'm going to tell you about comes to us from Indiana University and suggests that mother's use of antidepressants during early pregnancy does not increase the risk of their children developing autism or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, otherwise known as ADHD. Uh, these are conditions previously associated with these medications. Now, this research was reported on April 18th in the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, which you'll recognize is one of the best-known and most prestigious medical journals, bar none, and it found significant evidence for only a very slight increase in risk for premature birth in the infants of mothers who used antidepressants during the first trimester of pregnancy, but not for autism or ADHD. Now, the slight increase in premature birth, this confirms data that's been known for many decades. Um, but basically, it amounts to, on average, being delivered two to three weeks before the due date, technically still considered a full-term birth and not 
considered premature. So I don't want anyone out there to think, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm on medicine or I'm thinking of being on medicine when I'm pregnant. That means when my baby's going to come premature. No. Uh, just slightly earlier, not considered premature. Now, as far as uh, the research that we're talking about, after controlling for multiple other risk factors, the researchers did not find any increased risk of autism, ADHD, or reduced fetal growth among exposed offspring. And uh, that's very interesting because they're are very robust data to show that maternal depression will lead to reduced fetal growth. All right, and the risk for uh, giving birth somewhat early was 1.3 times higher for the exposed offspring compared to unexposed offspring. Again, that's what they mean by very, very slight uh, increased risk there with the medicine. This is one of the strongest studies to show that exposure to antidepressants during early pregnancy is not associated with autism, ADHD, or poor fetal growth when taking into account the factors that lead to medication use in the first place. What they mean here is you have to take into account what is the effect of maternal depression on all these factors. Uh, maternal depression in and of itself will have a negative impact on fetal development, uh, much less whatever risks there may or may not be from the medication. Balancing the risks and benefits of using antidepressants during pregnancy is an extremely difficult decision that every woman should make in consultation with her doctor. And I would say specifically, not just most obviously her OBGYN, but also uh, if she already has previous children, her pediatrician, um, or if this is her first child with whatever pediatrician she is considering uh, having take care of her uh, newborn child. Now, the study suggests that use of these medications and depressants while pregnant may be safer than previously thought, which is very, very reassuring. Uh, again, the reports of antidepressants during pregnancy being associated with risk of autism and ADHD were uh, understandably extremely scary. So this is very reassuring to find out that that is not in reality the case. The analysis was conducted in collaboration with researchers at the very prestigious Karolinska Institute in Sweden, and also uh, the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. It drew upon data on all live births in Sweden from 1996 to 2012. That's a really nice long period of time, uh, a great sample size. And again, if people are curious about, well, you know, why Sweden? Scandinavian countries keep extraordinarily detailed health records from birth to death. So if you wanted to do any epidemiological study about any medical issue at all, uh, it's really the best place to uh, access data like that. Now, it also incorporated data reporting the country's antidepressant prescriptions in adults 
and then also autism and ADHD diagnoses in children, as well as genetic relationships between parents and children, the parents' age and education levels, and other factors. So they really looked at anything and everything that could contribute to a child having ADHD or autism, not just the fact that they were on antidepressants or not. So they could really drill down and make sure the antidepressant uh, was the one factor, the one variable that they're judging whether it had an effect on those two diagnoses or not. So the study compiled over one and a half million infants. Again, not surprising given the long period of time they looked at, uh, 1996 to 2012. This is one of the largest and most comprehensive populations ever analyzed to understand the impact of antidepressant use during pregnancy. And that's an extremely important point because so many of the other studies uh, looked at much, much smaller populations. Uh, I can't think of any that came anywhere close to one and a half million. The increased risk for early delivery was found after controlling for other factors that affect health, such as a mother's age of childbearing, uh, in siblings whose mothers used antidepressants during one pregnancy, but not during another pregnancy. The ability to compare siblings who were differentially exposed to antidepressants in pregnancy is a major strength of this study. Most analyses rely upon statistical matching to control for differences in factors such as age, race, and socioeconomic status. But it's difficult to know if you've made a perfect match because you can't be certain you have all the relevant measures to control for these differences. When comparing unrelated children and controlling for related risk factors, the researchers found a slightly higher risk for all four conditions. 1.4 times higher odds for premature birth, 1.1 times higher odds for low fetal growth, and 1.6 times higher risk for autism and ADHD. In an uncontrolled analysis, which did not take these factors into account, antidepressant use in early pregnancy was associated with one and a half times higher odds for early birth, early delivery, 1.2 times higher odds for fetal growth, 2.0 times higher risk for autism, and 2.2 times increased risk for ADHD. The majority of the antidepressants examined in the study, 82%, were selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs for short. These are the most common type of antidepressants, but I want to stress by no means the only type. Uh, there are many other types of antidepressants that are not SSRIs, but the commonly used ones and the commonly known SSRIs include familiar medication names like Prozac, Zoloft, Celexa, Paxil, and Lexapro. Luvox is also an SSRI, even though in the United States it's not only approved for obsessive-compulsive disorder. In other countries in the world, 
It is approved for other anxiety disorders and depression, much like the other SSRIs are in the United States. In addition to the use of these medications during early pregnancy, the study looked at concurrent antidepressant use in fathers, as well as mothers' use of antidepressants before, but not during, pregnancy. These uses were associated with increased risk for autism and poor fetal growth in ADHD, providing evidence that family factors, such as genetics or environmental factors, influence these outcomes, as opposed to antidepressant use during pregnancy. All right, well, we're going to take our first commercial break here, and then when we come back, we'll briefly sum up this study and move on to some other interesting mental health issues. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed, and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered, because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Uh, just finishing up the uh, article that we talked about during the first segment about how a very thorough and detailed comprehensive study of antidepressant use during pregnancy, which accumulated 1.5 million exposures uh, over a, a very lengthy period of time, 1996 to 2012, included that there is no increased risk of autism or ADHD 
when women take antidepressants during pregnancy. These uh, additional very careful comparisons the researchers completed provide further evidence that other factors besides uh, exposure to antidepressants explain why women who took these medications were more likely to have offspring that had uh, neurodevelopmental problems, but it's not the medications. And again, uh, I think this not only should be reassuring for women who suffer from anxiety and or depression and need to take these medications in order to feel well but still want to have families, but I feel it also goes a long way to combating the stigma associated with psychiatric diagnosis and psychiatric medication. Um, And again, there's unfortunately a very strong anti-psychiatry and anti-medication bias out there and uh, data that purportedly show these risks associated with the medications just go further to increase that stigma and scare people away from very necessary treatment needlessly. Uh, Women with far uh, more complicated medical problems have to take far more toxic medications than antidepressants, and they still have successful pregnancies. They still uh, raise healthy children and even uh, nurse them whilst taking these medications. So I've always felt that there's been too much hand-wringing about the effects of antidepressants in pregnancy when you take that into account. And uh, I'm very grateful that the Indiana University researchers uh, have taken the time and effort to come up with this data. And again, you know, hopefully that it is in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which, uh, you know, the major media outlets usually scour those pages for big news. Uh, hopefully uh, this will get as much mainstream media coverage as, unfortunately, some of the more misguided uh, information out there about mental health issues sometimes has in the past. Well, next up on tonight's podcast, there have been uh, a lot of articles lately about some substances that are used to treat psychiatric disorders that when you get right down to it, are extremely dangerous hallucinogenic drugs of abuse. And you're immediately thinking, well, how could that possibly be? And I agree, it's not really a good idea, and yet there's a lot more that's happening with these types of things. So what we have to do is take a a very close look at what's going on and and see what the story is, see what the risks are, uh, why is there so much hype about it, and you know, know the background as far as you know where these notions came from that you could use hallucinogens to treat mental illness. So I have two articles I want to go over with you. The first one is about ketamine. Now, if you follow mental health issues uh, with any uh, regularity, you've probably heard. Tremendous, tremendous buzz about ketamine. 
Uh, ketamine has been found to relieve depression in minutes or hours, as opposed to weeks or months that antidepressant medications take to start working. So there's a lot of excitement, a lot of buzz about it. The only problem is ketamine is widely abused and misused. It's a club drug. Its nickname is Special K. It does have a legitimate medical use as an anesthetic, uh, but its side effects include psychosis and hallucinations. All right, but let's, uh, let's look at this article where at least finally some physicians are saying, wait a minute, you know, in all the buzz and all the hype about this, uh, what we're missing is what is the data? How should doctors approach using this for their patients? So uh, finally some people are paying attention to putting out some guidance on the use of ketamine in mood disorders. An expert consensus statement aimed at helping physicians safely and appropriately administer the anesthetic ketamine for the treatment of severe depression and other mood disorders has been issued, at least in part in response to the growing and ungoverned off-label use of the drug by ketamine clinics throughout the United States. Yes, uh, ketamine is not approved as a treatment for depression. Despite that, there are clinics that have popped up all over the U.S. where people with severe depression can get hooked up to an IV and get administered ketamine to treat their depression. Um, this is legal insofar as even though it's an unapproved use, uh, doctors are able to prescribe it as long as they explain fully to their patients that it is not an approved use and what the risks and benefits are and document very, very, very carefully that their patients understand this information and willingly consent to the treatment in spite of it. Uh, <clears throat> now, there is clear evidence that the use of ketamine for the treatment of mood disorders is increasing rapidly around the country, and there was a need for some guidance around what is known. So at a minimum, there will be some information out there for clinicians who are interested in either referring people to these treatment centers or administering it themselves. The reality is that this is a unique situation where there is Admittedly, a tremendously promising treatment, it is already used a lot, and that is really a transformative change in the field, but the limits of the knowledge have to be appreciated as far as, you know, what information doctors are working with right now. Now, this consensus statement about the guidelines for ketamine for mood disorders was published online March the 1st in Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry. Um, and the most robust evidence supporting the use of ketamine in psychiatric disorders is in the treatment of major depressive episodes in the absence of psychotic features. Um, that may sound a little bit confusing. Let me just explain Major depression can be either with or without psychotic features. Psychotic features is things like delusions or hallucinations. 
uh, hallucinations would be seeing things or hearing things that are not there. Delusions would be extremely bizarre uh, beliefs that cannot possibly be based in reality. Now, you may think, well, isn't that what people with very serious mental illness such as uh, psychosis from schizophrenia or delusional manic psychosis and bipolar disorder suffer? Well, yes, but it turns out there are subsets of major depression patients who can also suffer those symptoms. So I think really the meaning of this distinction is that, you know, is it really just those who are the, the patients without the psychotic features who are depressed are the ones that are going to respond better? I think it's more that doctors are going to use common sense. They're not going to give something that we know induces a psychotic state, including hallucinations, to patients who have major depression with psychotic features. Now, the, the data about ketamine in treatment of major depression are limited by the fact that most of the studies evaluated the effectiveness of it only during the first week of treatment following a single intravenous infusion of ketamine. The authors of the consensus statement note that physicians may consider the use of ketamine provided they conduct a comprehensive evaluation to confirm that the patient meets the appropriate diagnostic criteria for depression. All right, first you're going to make sure that you're treating the right diagnosis, that they ensure the patient has undergone an adequate trial of other Food and Drug Administration approved antidepressant therapies. Okay, so secondly, you're going to make sure before you give them this treatment that's not approved and that has potentially very dangerous side effects, they will have failed preferably several approved treatments and continue to suffer. And lastly, that they rule out any history of substance abuse or psychotic disorders. Ruling out any history of psychotic disorders is essential because, again, ketamine can induce psychosis and or hallucinations. But why rule out substance abuse? Well, uh, if someone is a known substance abuser, then their agenda in seeking treatment at a ketamine clinic might be to get the desired altered state of mind uh, that the drug will provide um, as I said before, it's been a popular club drug for many, many years. Expert committee members also strongly encourage physicians to obtain a urine drug screen before considering treating patients with ketamine to make sure that patients' self-report of their substance use history is accurate. And as I said before, informed consent in writing should also be obtained for each patient who is a potential candidate for ketamine treatment. And in addition, physicians need to discuss the potential risks associated with ketamine use and the limits of information supporting its benefits with all patients deemed to be appropriate candidates for ketamine treatment. And what these experts did was very important. They summarized the current literature so that everyone knows what, what that is 
and give everyone their best guess as to minimal requirements to use the drug. All right, we're going to go to commercial break real quick here. We'll come back, finish our thoughts on this, and have more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And we're talking about, finally, someone has tried to tame this wild frontier of doctors setting up clinics to administer ketamine to severely depressed patients who don't get better with conventional approved treatments and are giving them what are essentially unapproved experimental treatments with potentially very severe side effects. So what are the consequences other than what I mentioned from ketamine, psychosis, hallucinations? Well, blood pressure can spike in response to a ketamine infusion in some patients. Although data suggests that ketamine seems to be relatively safe at a standard intravenous dose, patients should be in a facility where blood pressure can be monitored and that there is a physician present who is trained to deal with a medical catastrophe should one occur. 
like an, a precipitous drop in blood pressure. The committee members who, again, uh, put out some consensus guidelines on uh, the use of ketamine in the treatment of mood disorders also caution that some patients may experience transient dissociative or psychotic-like states in response to ketamine infusion. Um, they say transient. You hope that it's transient, mean, meaning that it, it goes away after a brief period of time, that it doesn't lead to something, God forbid, permanent or lasting. And physicians also need to be prepared to treat emergency behavioral problems should they arise, like psychosis, hallucinations, severe anger, agitation. Physicians should also be capable of evaluating patients for the presence of suicidal thinking prior to discharging patients home. Adequate follow-up and a long-term plan to manage the patient's depression are mandatory. Again, you can't forget that these folks are being treated in this setting because they have extremely severe depression. So they're definitely going to be a population who's already at high risk for suicide. And if you're going to give them this, again, uh, I don't think I'm exaggerating by saying experimental and very dangerous treatment, uh, <clears throat> you better be able to monitor them for complications, including suicide. The consensus authors also strongly advise physicians to adopt a standard operating procedure for the delivery of ketamine treatments. And if there are, by any chance, any of you listening to this who may be considering going to one of these clinics to try it, this is something you also want to know about, there should be confirmation of the pre-procedure evaluation and informed consent. There should be an initial assessment or pre-treatment assessment of vital signs, blood pressure, heart rate, oxygen saturation. And also there should be incorporation of a timeout interlude during which the name of the patient and correct dosing parameters are confirmed. This is much like what happens in a hospital before someone is administered some sort of major treatment like a blood transfusion or chemotherapy drug or before going to surgery, for example. And there needs to be ongoing assessment of the patient's physiologic and mental status during the infusion process. Experts also caution that the benefits of giving repeated infusions of ketamine are as yet poorly defined. Small case series suggest that ketamine can be given more than once, but to date, most studies have investigated the effects of treatment of less than one month's duration. Clearly, we need more and better information than that. Too many people are getting treated with it without enough information. Probably the best evidence to date suggests that giving the drug twice a week for up to four weeks is effective, but the authors caution that patients still need to be monitored closely using a rating instrument to objectively assess any change in the patient's mood 
and that the physician reevaluate the risk of continuing treatment against potential benefit. Experts also strongly recommend that the benefit of each ketamine infusion be weighed against the potential risks associated with long-term exposure to the drug. There's too little information on the long-term use of ketamine, and that's one of the major drawbacks to its use. For example, is the potential for psychotic-like side effects cumulative? In other words, does the risk increase with each additional treatment administered? And uh, what is the upper limit? These are things that we don't know. Quite frankly, too much we don't know. All right, and then there is the abuse potential of the drug, right? And so someone who is a drug abuser could uh, try to manipulate their way into getting this treatment. Given its potential for abuse, the authors of the guidelines state that clinicians should be vigilant about assessing the potential for patients to develop ketamine use disorder. And the number and frequency of treatments should be limited to the minimum necessary to achieve clinical response. So they're taking it a step further. They're saying if someone is prone to substance abuse, or perhaps even not, that they could wind up uh, developing some sort of uh, abuse disorder where it concerns ketamine and uh, start to seek the altered state from it, other than just relief from depression. Then, as far as discontinuation of the drug, it should be discontinued if dosing cannot be tapered to a minimum of one dose per week by the second month of treatment and still bring about relief from depression, the goal being to eventually discontinue the treatment altogether. Uh, again, because no one knows what the long-term risks might be. A really important part of these recommendations is to make sure people fully understand what the risks and benefits are to this treatment so that they are able to make an informed decision based on knowing what the risk-benefit ratio is. Ketamine is the number one drug of abuse in Asia. Think about that. So I don't want you to think that there's undue attention that these guidelines are, are putting on the potential for substance abuse and screening for it, including getting a urine drug screen before administering it. Uh, again, the number one drug of abuse in Asia is ketamine. So a clinician has to be thoughtful about who are you going to prescribe it to and asking very important questions first, such as have patients been adequately treated with other approved treatments? Have they been screened for substance abuse, alcohol abuse? So while ketamine may be very exciting and it needs follow-up, a better database is also needed the one we have now is inadequate. Um, I'm not trying to hide the fact that I'm not buying into the hype about this stuff. Very skeptical about it. Um, <clears throat> but again, 
let me balance that with saying that we can't lose sight of the fact that there's something very, very exciting going on about people who desperately suffered with depression for years uh, in some cases without relief from multiple treatments, um, even electroconvulsive therapy, uh, derisively known as shock therapy, can get relief within minutes uh, from this drug. But um, not only do I feel very strongly that that excitement needs to be tempered with awareness of the very serious risks of side effects, but I also think that rather than enthusiastically diving into using this to help people feel better, which is what has happened, there needs to be study of what exactly does ketamine do to relieve depression so quickly and so thoroughly? And is there some other pharmaceutical that can be developed that does the same thing without the risk of side effects? And I think that's really the way things should move in that direction, uh, not using ketamine itself as the answer uh, for the need for a depression treatment that works well and quickly. Fortunately, there is such research underway. There are scientists at the National Institutes of Health who are working on just that very issue that I articulated. In other words, a drug that works similarly to ketamine but should not have the same side effects. Uh, hopefully those efforts will bear fruit soon and uh, patients will be able to get quick and thorough relief from depression without uh, being in such risk for serious complications. Well, so if we haven't beaten the uh, ketamine hype issue to death enough, along comes hype about a very, very old drug of abuse, LSD. Uh, that's right, acid, as it's known, uh, the classic prototypical hallucinogen from the 1960s. Uh, what was that expression again? Uh, tune in, uh, or rather, or tur turn on and tune out. Well, you know, I don't think I have that quite right, but in any case... Believe it or not, psychiatrists are once again coming around to promoting the use of LSD to treat mental health problems. And if I sound exasperated by that, it's a good reason. When LSD was first synthesized, it was thought of as something that could potentially be used to treat mental illness. But then, of course, all the side effects were discovered. Again, psychosis, hallucinations, uh, people can do very, very dangerous and reckless things when they're under its influence and die of uh, horrible accidents as a result or get themselves maimed or blinded or what have you. Uh, so it never panned out. But when we come back from this next commercial break, we'll look again at some more research into how possibly this could be reconsidered as a treatment. We'll be right back after this break. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. 
We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Pastry ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare. Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Uh, now let's talk about LSD and what we may have learned by using it, uh, some details about how the brain processes fear, how LSD works. Scientists at the University of Basel have shown that LSD reduces activity in the region of the brain related to the handling of negative emotions like fear. Wow. Well, that would explain why people do fearless and reckless things and wind up killing or maiming themselves or blinding themselves when they use it, now wouldn't it? Well, anyway, the results of the study were published in the scientific journal Translational Psychiatry, and the authors claim this could affect the treatment of mental illnesses such as depression or anxiety. Hallucinogens such as LSD have many different effects on the psyche. Among other things, they alter perception, thought, and temporal and emotional experience. After the Basel-based chemist Albert Hoffman discovered lysergic acid diethylamide, 
which goes by the abbreviation LSD, way back in the 1940s. There was a huge amount of interest in the substance, particularly in psychiatry. It was hoped, for example, that it could provide insights into the development of hallucinations in certain psychiatric syndromes. And studies were conducted on its effectiveness in illnesses such as depression and even alcohol dependency. In the 1960s, LSD was declared illegal worldwide, and medical research on it came to a standstill. It does, after all, cause uh, permanent brain and uh, genetic damage. In the last few years, however, much to my chagrin, as you can tell, interest in researching hallucinogens for medical purposes has been revived. Psychoactive substances such as LSD, particularly in combination with psychotherapies, could offer an alternative to conventional medication. It is now known that hallucinogens bind to a receptor of the neurotransmitter serotonin, well known, of course, because it is the serotonin pathway that most but not only in the depressants work on, but how the changes of consciousness influence the activity and connectivity of the brain, however, is not yet known. Researchers have now conducted a study into the acute effect of LSD on the brain. They used functional magnetic resonance imaging to measure the brain activity of 20 healthy people after taking 100 micrograms of LSD. During the MRI scan, the participants were shown images of faces portraying different emotional states, such as anger, joy, or fear. The research team showed that the depiction of fear under LSD led to a notably lower level of activity in the amygdala, an area of the brain that is believed to be central to the processing of fearful stimuli and the emotions behind them. This observation could explain some of the changes in emotional experience that occur after taking hallucinogens. In a second step, the researchers examined whether the subjective experience altered by LSD is associated with the amygdala. This appears to be the case. The lower the LSD-induced amygdala activity of a subject, the higher the subjective effect of the drug. The authors claim this so-called defrightening effect of the drug could be an important factor for positive therapeutic effects. The researchers presume that hallucinogens may cause many more changes in brain activity. Further studies will investigate this with a particular focus on their therapeutic potential. Well, to take this information and think that you could use something that's known to cause such 
serious psychoactive side effects and other side effects and use it as a potential treatment for depression or anxiety, again, to me, is just worse than beyond the pale. Uh, much as we talked about in an earlier segment about ketamine, instead my hope would be that, fine, you want to study these effects and you find enough willing subjects who are willing to accept the risks of taking LSD uh, and it's within the ethical requirements of the institutional review boards where you're doing your research, I guess that's okay for you. But let's not think that we can somehow translate LSD into a mainstream treatment for mental illness. Let's instead uh, look at what other compounds there may be that could help reduce fearful responses to certain emotionally charged stimuli without the risk of those side effects. Next on Psychiatry Today, more information to show that mindfulness meditation is effective at treating mental health problems. A study that found that mindfulness group therapy, group therapy this time, mind you, has been equally effective as individual cognitive behavioral therapy for the treatment of a wide range of psychiatric symptoms in patients with depression, anxiety, and stress-related disorders. It's very interesting in that they're comparing group therapy on the one hand with an individual therapy, but they're both psychotherapies. It's a lot more difficult than you might think to compare different types of psychotherapies as opposed to different medications, much less different as far as individual versus group. The need for psychotherapy in primary health care is on the increase for patients who are suffering with a variety of mental health problems. However, individual therapy is costly and supply does not meet the demand. Uh, there are <clears throat> not enough therapists who are taking new patients and certainly too few who accept health insurance. And uh, so there are a lot of economic obstacles to people accessing individual therapy. Group therapy, however, with mindfulness can be a viable alternative treatment, which at the same time would free up resources in healthcare to be used more efficiently. Uh, group therapy treats a larger number of people at the same time, and the cost is much less than individual therapy. This new research shows that the mindfulness group therapy has the equivalent effect as individual cognitive behavioral therapy for a wide range of psychiatric symptoms that are common. And the study we're talking about, by the way, was published in the journal European Psychiatry. Now, individual cognitive behavioral therapy has always been thought of as the gold standard as far as either with or without medication to treat most mental health problems, everything from anxiety disorders to depression and insomnia. However, the mindfulness group therapy was found to be just as effective as the individual cognitive behavioral therapy for depression and anxiety. The study group included 215 patients 
with depression, anxiety, or stress-related disorders. They were recruited from 16 different healthcare centers across southern Sweden for the eight-week randomized controlled trial. The researchers studied a broad range of psychiatric symptoms measured by several specific questionnaires, including the Symptom Checklist 90, or SCL 90, which we use here in the United States as well, and looked at how symptoms changed during treatment, either with mindfulness and group therapy or individual cognitive behavioral therapy. So here's the answer to that one problem. Well, how do you compare different types of therapies? Uh, you use the, the same outcome measure, and therefore you, you see the differences uh, between the two groups using the same outcome measure, the SCL90. The results show the average score on that symptom checklist for all 15 different subscales and indexes decreased significantly in both the various scales measured, among others, symptoms of depression, general anxiety, stress, and somatization. Uh, somatization refers to how anxiety and stress and depression can affect how you feel physically. It also measured obsessive-compulsive disorder symptoms, interpersonal sensitivity, aggression, phobic anxiety, paranoid ideation, and psychotic symptoms. And there was no difference in the treatment effect between the two groups. In other words, they both improved to a similar degree. And as mental illnesses are ever-increasing at a fast rate, it is very important to expand the treatment alternatives for patients in primary health care settings, and the scarce resources for psychotherapy should be at least partly reallocated to mindfulness group therapy, in the opinion of the study authors, uh, so that the limited availability of individual psychotherapy can be utilized in an optimal fashion. Well, it's easy to see that they took that point of view. Uh, but still, uh, even though group therapy is more cost-effective um, in the United States, in any case, there are other barriers. There are patient barriers. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people see group therapy as sort of a, a lesser, uh, less desirable substitute for individual therapy which is a shame. It's not really the case. It's just different than individual therapy. But regardless, I think the take-home point is that it's just more evidence that mindfulness is the real deal, uh, no, uh, no longer considered fluff science. It's real science documents the benefits of it, and uh, when you put, a, put it up against the gold standard of cognitive behavioral therapy, that's impressive. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's podcast. Hope you have a wonderful stress-free week until we get together next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night. Thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.